0: Everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Virtually Speaking with Jay Aykroyd. I'm really pleased to be here with RJ Esco. He is a long standing advisor to foreign countries about economics issues, also a freelance writer, and someone who's really committed to deeping, deepening the wisdom in the public policy arena. So I'm really grateful to him for joining us. Also, you can catch him at the Zero Hour at, uh, at the radio station that I'm forgetting the name of that I'll plug in, and uh, at We Ask Radio. So thank you very much for joining us, RJ.
1: Oh, it's always a pleasure.
0: I guess – Thanks for having me. What's motivating me, and the reason I gave you a call, RJ, is because last time I had you – last time you joined us at Virtually Speaking Sundays, you and Cliff Schechter really got an interesting discussion about the role of being an inside versus an outside player. And I thought that was especially interesting because you've been on the inside of policy debates over the years. And can you tell us, you know, what it's like to sit there with the say the foreign minister of domestic policy and discuss with him what public policy alternatives he has?
1: Well, you know, it, it differs from nation to nation. I think I guess most of my experience in actually helping to set public policy has been through the ages of whether it was the world bank or a state department or whatever, I was a contractor for both those organizations. So in those cases, sometimes you're there as somebody either with the ability to or perceived as having the ability to give money or, or lend money or provide access to money. And you're part of a team in those cases and so the conversations uh, you know i've never heard, i've read uh, books where they say you know this straight you dictate to people this is how it's going to be that's never how it was for us it was always a conversation it was always collaborative but every country was different every process was different you know the stations emerging the, the nations emerging from communism for example offered a very different experience than, let's say, third-world countries. Uh, I, I also worked in a couple uh, European countries doing the same thing. But in terms of this, and on the government level, I also worked with regulators somewhat at the state level here in the U.S. But um, as far as the federal government and the setting of policy, uh, I've never had, uh, here in the States, I've never had uh, a deep experience with that. I've certainly had conversations with people who are policymakers off the record talks and
0: from I was cabinet? I really uh, thinking about. Down, I really was thinking about the foreign the foreign experience you've because I've known that that's something that you've done. Um, you know, people do they do they speak frankly in these environments? I mean, you you're coming in as 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 you say as a consultant, but you're also coming in as the pro from Dover, an expert whose opinion is supposed to be valued. Is it is it is that how it really works?
1: Not necessarily. I mean, I think that uh, most people see you as a person of a great power, more power than you actually possess. But I think because of that, people are very careful about what they say, and 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 they're they're calculating and they're they're determining what uh, might work best, or what your interests are, or what your preferences are, that sort of thing. So it works in very different ways. I, I've, I've had. A lot of different experiences. I mean, there was at least one country where I got too close to some of the policymakers involved, and some of the others, in order to get me out of play, started um, threatening me and uh, attempting to blackmail me and doing all sorts of things. Uh, uh, so I've been in that kind of situation. I've also been in the kind of situation where uh, I went once on a aid contract to Albania, just uh, a few, just about a month after it had been open to the West for the first time in 40 years. And I uh, was basically told that there was somebody involved with another aid organization that ran the entire operation and nobody would speak with me, even though I was there to give out money. People were shunning me for days and finally someone said, look, you have to go to this person and get her blessing and then she'll give everybody permission to talk to you. And this was a person from an international you know, IMF type, uh, World Bank type. I'm not saying it was those organizations, but certainly could have been. Uh, They were basically saying until you get her okay and that gets spread around town, people will be afraid to talk to you because they won't want to make her angry. I mean, so I've seen that too.
0: So you've got a personal fiefdom from someone who's not strictly speaking in the government and actually having an enormous amount of practical power.
1: Right, with someone who's not even from that country. Um, or you run the risk of being too associated with the Ministry of Welfare. I, I worked on putting computer systems in for health insurance in um Hungary and Poland, for example, you run the ERISA. If you get associated with one ministry, let's say health and welfare, then the people from the technology ministry don't want to help you or vice versa. Or you get people who suddenly express enormous interest in the idea of the US government giving a, a a personal computer to every physician in the country or let's say every primary care physician of whom there might be 8000 and then you find out that they've snagged the uh, the import uh contract for PC parts and that you know so so it really it it, it can be all over the map uh in India I was over there as an advisor uh, and also to give a a talk, uh, participate in a conference sponsored by the Harvard School of International Public Health, but I was also asked by uh, a large uh, financial and insurance organization to talk with the insurance commissioner there about whether he'd be willing to collaborate in some way with American companies. And, um, basically was told yes. And then six weeks later got a call from Henry Kissinger's assistant asking on behalf of a very powerful uh, billionaire, uh, what did he say word for word? What did the insurance commissioner say? Well, the insurance commissioner was a retired Bollywood actor with a, uh, 12-inch mustache and, and very kind of exaggerated dashing, and, and his words were not all that important or necessarily perhaps all that thought out. You might not even have remembered the conversation. I certainly didn't six weeks later, and, uh, and what I was told was Dr. Kissinger wants to know word for word what was said. And I said to the guy, listen, man, you know, it's been six weeks. I'm not sure I can give you word for word. I can give you the gist. He said, you're not hearing me. Dr. Kissinger wants to know word for word, the gist of which I took to mean make something up.
0: Yes, exactly. So, Well, that's so one of the things I wanted to explore is that to what degree do um, important public officials create um, – that we've used the word bubble, but it's really not that. It's create a line of a, – a lines of communication that are not filled with honesty but are filled with what they're expected to hear, what they want to hear. How hard is it to – I mean one way I heard this put was uh, a guy in a rock and roll band said, if you go out to dinner with 12 or 14 people on a routine basis and you look around and none of them are off the payroll, well, you're officially an asshole. Um how does how do you keep a line of of communication open if you're a powerful government official or you know somebody like Kissinger, someone who is a powerful influence on government officials?
1: Uh, you know, I think this gets back to what we were talking about. You alluded to in your introduction with uh, Chris Schechter. I think that. To me, that's an anthropology question as much as it is a corruption question, I think with the rock and roll band. Okay, I, I, the I agree guys, completely.
0: I agree completely. It's, it's, an arch- it's an anthropological question. It's a social sociological question, a question in how human organizations work in practice. Yes, that's the kind of question it is.
1: Yeah, and so I think you know, one of the things that uh, you know, Henry Kissinger is in a class by himself, which the rest of us may be grateful for. But um, one of the things that the – let's say the people around him and Kissinger and Associates and and, um, a lot of people who work in this nebulous world of lobbying, um, consulting, public policy – a lot of what they're selling is, as you know, access, but the access so so there's a financial transaction and there' but it's based on a social network and in the Clinton administration they were famous for this that that for for reasons that are too long to go into, I found myself looking up a a guy who I met who had been one of the original friends of Bill when Bill Clinton was elected. And I found myself going back to 1992 or 1993, uh, a concern about influence in the White House being uh, driven by some of these guys just because they'd known Bill Clinton since he was 15 or whatever and um and that became a saleable commodity why not because uh, Bill Clinton or anyone around him decided that they wanted to create that kind of structure, but because here's a guy, Bill, uh, you know, the the study I always go back to is the anthropologist uh, Dunbar, who says people can basically only really know between 147 and 230 people. Those are the only people, uh, beyond that, you may know the name, the face, but only really know a limited number of people. Now, so what these people start to trade is the network of relationships. And if a guy who knows Bill, also knows Larry Summers and Larry Summers knows that one then you find you start to do the mapping of the relationships and you find a small universe of people Uh, in any country that you do uh, business with including the United States a small universe of people really do have access to everyone and everything and that functions that plays out one of two ways one is if you want to talk to the Minister of Finance you find the guy everywhere we went whether I was in public service or working for private enterprise in other countries, you found the guy who knew the guys or the pert woman who knew the guys or whatever. You, you, you found an entry point into the network. We didn't think of it that way back then, but it was a given. You, you found somebody who knew people. Uh, you know, I didn't think of it necessarily anthropologically then, but I do now. So, uh, So that's number one. But number two is the shared value system that starts to permeate. This network, for example, I found in some of the countries emerging from communism, that there was an acceptance, a very high level of corruption. I watched it infiltrate very quickly because I was in these countries before communism fell in some of them, and, and. and you saw these, they were the young, you know, long-haired student reformers who were tired of the oppressive system and, were, you know, will fight for democratic freedom. And then quickly you saw a lot of them, a the Fidesz, for example, the party in Hungary that is now proto-fascistic and always had, very early on, had that seed. Now, you saw very early on that as they got elected to parliament and so on, that the young idealists were suddenly... It became acceptable in their culture to trade on relationships and then perhaps include a little financial remuneration uh, as well. And you saw this kind of creeping corruption, which besides being a legal problem, is a culture problem. So in our country... There's a different kind of corruption. It's not bribery or or, or that kind of thing necessarily, but there's the soft bribery of, you know, you work for Treasury and then you work for Citigroup, right? And that's because, you know, I knew Peter always when he was director of uh, uh, OMB and now he's the senior vice president at Citigroup. I'm going to call Peter and see if I can get a good job over there for good pay, which means I'm not going to do anything to antagonize either Citigroup or Peter. And that's how the system works.
0: And so these are and so, and almost never government elected officials that we're talking about. We're talking about people who are in staff positions and who become powerful in staff positions in and out. I'm thinking of like people like Vernon Jordan, who was a real power broker back in the, back in the 90s because he knew pretty much everybody, right? Right. Yeah. Right,
1: sure, and that—that that is what. Well, I'm talking about several categories of people. I mean, you have the people who are connectors, and you know your Stanley Milgram, you know your sociology, you know the people who are the connectors and who are just by nature. I and mean, my, my wife is one of them. I, there are people out there who just become focal points; they become nodes. Right. Uh, and people socially connect through them and it's been known it's been tracked and Milgram's famous experiment was giving people letters to carry and then tracking in New York and saying you know can you find somebody who can get this out west of course m- de- many decades before the internet and some of the letters took 40 it would pass through 40 hands before they got to California others only passed through 6 why? because they hit somebody in Chicago who just knew everybody they right. knew somebody in Des Moines. They, now, now, Vernon Jordan has multi- had multiple gifts, one of which was that he was a connector, the other of which was that he was extremely charismatic and persuasive and the other was that he was willing to, in whatever way, barter that, trade on that. Mm-hmm. And so the, that made him one kind of individual but then you have the lower level kind of I mean the, the famous story of Neil Borowski, the Inspector General for the TARP program. Yes. Going, the very aggressive guy. By the and, way, so, and Neil, saying, we do have
0: an interview with Neil on the book, on on, on uh, virtually speaking. If you want to look it up, because the book's fascinating about this kind of topic. Go on. The book.
1: Absolutely fascinating. And so, of course, you know, the conversation you had, I think, if I recall correctly, with Tim Geithner, he said, look, you know, people are going to want to know you're going to need a job when this is all over. People are going to want to know, are you the kind of guy they can work with? Well, that's another, that's an enforcement of the, the shared social values. Can we get along with you or can we not get along with you? Um, so now, now Neil Borofsky is not, Vernon Jordan. He had never had aspirations to be Vernon Jordan. He was always going to be a manager and a technical guy, um, as I was. Right? But um, And there are brilliant ones, and there are mediocre ones and all that. And he was really good at it, a uh, star at it. But uh, basically, he was being told, you can make a lot of money. You can do really well. You can have a really nice life. Or you can give people a hard time now, in which case the the tribe will reject you. So I guess we've got, you know, we've got the deal makers, and we've got the people who are just enforcing the folkways of the tribe on one another, as Geithner was doing with Borofsky and Elizabeth Warren, and her book talks about a similar conversation with Larry Summers. Uh, you know, that insiders... Yeah, that, uh, that, that's that,
0: where I wanted to go, actually, was to that very conversation, because that's one of the things you yeah. and Cliff were talking about. Now, Summers says expressly to her, according to her version of events, that if you want to have influence, you have to not talk about what happens.
1: Right, and that insiders don't criticize other insiders. Um, and this is instrumental. This I've seen a lot. This is because i as uh, you know, but your listeners, uh, you know, most most likely don't. I deal a lot with economists and people who are uh, policy advisors of one sort or another. Some of whom have more outsider status, like myself. Some of whom uh, walk both sides of the line, and it's fascinating in group discussions and interactions to see how this sometimes plays out because I will for example I could be in conversation with an economist who seems quite reasonable, is bright and reasonable, enjoying the conversation but then we'll get to a topic like uh, Alice Rivlin who is the well-known economist who worked for the Clinton administration is now who've done a lot of work for Brookings. Pete Peterson and his various yes, Brookings, but also Pete Peterson and his various foundations that are uh, dedicated to cutting Social Security and Medicare. And and at one point, Rivlin wrote what I considered a very cynical. Uh, hack piece, uh, an editorial which said basically said, as a liberal and an economist, I see no alternative to cutting the uh, Social Security, which I felt was intellectually dishonest, which I've always said is a way of saying dishonest with extra syllables, because it's dishonest to say, as a liberal and as an economist, just Technically speaking, I see no alternative cutting benefits without even mentioning, let's say, uh, suspending the payroll tax cap, lifting the payroll tax cap, and raising taxes on higher income people. You don't have to agree with that idea. But if you say to an audience, I'm telling you all the possibilities out there, and and that's just not part of it, then my answer to that is that's intellectually dishonest. And we were having this very pleasant conversation until I – I said that I thought that Alice Rivlin's piece, which had just come out, was intellectually dishonest because it omitted and he got furious. And and I realized that the reason why he'd gotten furious is that he still maintained enough of that insider status which Rivlin has, that my criticism of her was beyond the pale. That was an outsider's criticism of an insider. And this is the kind of thing I've observed a lot, Jay, and take great interest in, as I know you do, was the intensity of the reaction. That was the sociological or the anthropological dimension. It wasn't that this guy was saying, you know, Alice is an insider, and I'm an insider, and I've known Alice for 40 years, and this guy, you know, she's... Kind of rough. It was it was rage. It was this is out of line to talk like she's a person of intellectual integrity. And I was like, man, if she's got intellectual integrity, why is she saying I'm telling you all sides of the story, and she's not telling you all sides of the story? I don't I don't get where that squares with intellectual integrity. We don't talk we don't talk about uh, other people in our field this way. I was like, okay, all right. You know, I had transgressed, and it wasn't that I had transgressed. Uh, some sort of rule that he was reading out of a rule book. I had stepped on a core value of his, and I think that's always important to remember, because whether it's economists or lawyers or the Justice Department or anybody, they internalize as as um, you know as soci as educators and others have pointed out, sociologists. You internalize this consciousness. You make it a part of your personality and it's offensive to you and your worldview when somebody challenges it. That well, was my experience meet, meeting Tim Geithner. I mean, he was pissed off uh, when when I or others in the meeting, you know, off the record meeting, challenged his worldview. You know, he, he he wasn't just saying, no, I don't think you're right. I don't analyze the situation the same way. I mean, with me, he was downright snotty. Um, and sarcastic and, and, and bitter. Uh, and I think, again, because I think a lot of times we forget how deeply held... We, these are defense mechanisms, I think, for people who aren't, on some level, know they aren't uh, doing the right thing. But whatever it is, it's very intensely
0: held. Now, that there are two things I want to get to from that. One of them is um, the old Daniel Ellsberg story. I don't want to forget that. That's why I'm saying that out loud so I'll remember. Um, but the other thing is One of the things that's been driving me crazy for the last four or five years has been how difficult it is to introduce discussions of obviously good public policy. You know, things that just obviously things that we should do that it's impossible to see any reason why we wouldn't do Like, for example, having the post office be functional. It's obviously good public policy for the post office to work properly. It's obviously good public policy, as Atrio says all the time, to replace water mains they're going to break. It's a lot cheaper to replace them before they break than after they break. It's obviously good public policy to introduce a minimum wage that's somewhere close to what uh, is a living wage. These are obviously good public policies. It's really hard to come up with an argument against them, and yet they're very intractable. And one of them is... Um, preserving Social Security. Social Security is by far the most successful public policy program we have in the history of the country. It's one that's extremely popular. It's politically solid. You can't lose by supporting it. It's something that really creates a bit of stability for the elderly population and makes a kind of stability for the economy as a whole. It's obviously good public policy, and yes, it's it's constantly in danger. And it's constantly in danger for reasons that I could never really understand. And one of them is that there's a Deeply, I, I think and what I want to ask you, I guess, is it—is there a deeply held belief that this is just bad, that this has to just be dismantled by people who can't say so out loud but are actually committed to it?
1: Well, I don't think that it has to be dismantled, but that it has to be cut back in order the, the the mythology is that it has to be cut back in order to 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 be saved and I think that again, this is another one where I think the truth but r j that's, that's as, an
0: incoherent statement I, I know that's what they say and and I'm not saying you're being incoherent, but it's incoherent say right. we have to cut something to save it
1: <laughs> well, but see 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 this is again where the truth is both in terms of the people who who hold these beliefs is both Not as bad in terms of judging them, and worse in terms of judging them than I certainly would have thought going in. Not as bad meaning that they've gotten to the point where they really believe, after 30, 40 years of Pete Peterson funded, you know, get-togethers and think tanks and retreats and conferences and fiscal summits and everything else, they really have come to believe it's like the housing bubble, where economist after economist who is on the insides. Used the words, nobody knew this could happen. And economist after economist who was not on the inside said, we knew we published this paper in 1999 and 2002 and 2004 and 2005. A bunch of us knew. We met you at conferences, and we said, we think there's a bubble, and you said, nah. And, and and they could document that, that there were conferences and exchanges where the one group of economists said to another, big bubble, and the other economists said, no, no bubble. And yet, after the bubble exploded, the, the economists in the second group said, nobody knew. Now, were they liars? Were they just hack liars trying to conceal the record of the fact that they, no, they no, actually they- they,
0: there was nobody. All of the people they talked to who they thought were important people with good knowledge, people like Alice have once said, no, no, this has to be true.
1: Right, and they knew there was Dean Baker out there and a bunch of other guys saying this, maybe Schiller and some of the others saying, uh, saying there's a bubble, but, but when they say nobody knew, what they meant is that – my 147 people, my 238 people, nobody knew. We didn't take that seriously. So it's like, you know, it's the shared illusion of our tribe. It's like, no, it was unimaginable in our circle. That's what they mean. They're not lying. They're not, they're telling the truth as they process it, which is even scarier to me. So they, 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 To them, nobody knew. So getting back to your point about Social Security, it's, Everybody knows whether you, when you're talking to Geithner or anybody else, Obama, anybody, that they just they've been so deeply penetrated with this worldview that ah you got the the left out there they bitch about everything and you say to them no it's not the left it's 76 percent of Tea Partiers it's 78 percent of registered Republicans it's 81 percent of Independents it's great politics it's great eco- economically here's how you do it actuarially here's how now oh, you lefties, you know, it always goes back to because nobody we know thinks otherwise. And if you're a Democrat, then the way you prove you're a mature, sensible, gutsy guy or woman is by saying, I'm the <laughs> one who will stand up and do it.
0: It's by like going around I with David like Gregory to... and telling, that's right. like, telling David Gregory right. to get tough on those poor old people. <laughs>
1: Right. And remember the words of Martha Raditz at the Obama Romney debate when she brought up the subject of social security and she said everybody knows. Everybody knows it needs to be calm. There we go again because the media is part of this too. Everybody Martha Raditz knows believes that, because that's been drilled into them. It's amazing, and I'm always asking the Dean Bakers of the world, and the Robert Johnsons of the world, and the Paul Krugmans of the world. Every opportunity I get to talk to those guys, I say, am I crazy? Do people really believe this? Are they being like... Every time they know they believe it they, you know Robert Johnson is the economist who has a group called the Institute for New American uh, for New economic thinking, and um they're trying to change the culture of that but no, no these guys believe it, and yes, of course when your your livelihood depends on maintaining the myth that you're right about things the, that that in, Burrows itself into your belief system, too. So,
0: well, so the yeah, there's self-interest. The but- lucrativeness of these positions happens to line up very nicely. I mean, it, 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 it doesn't help any that you're going to make a lot more money if you're committed to um, a lower Social Security profile by the people who do things like run money center banks. I, I think, though, that... Is this, is this something – is this a mind-reading question? So maybe it's not a fair question. Maybe we can't really answer it. But do you think that, um, that Peterson and his ilk purposely exploited this sociological, anthropological, tribal fact, that they purposely tried to get influence over people who were nodes, were, power, were communication nodes, were connect- connectors, were people who were going to be able to uh, – if they get them to internalize this, if you make it widely held among the tribe?
1: I think you don't have to think – you don't have to articulate it the way you or I would in order to answer yes to that question. But, so by that I mean that my answer is yes, but that they didn't think of it anthropologically. The thought of it is let's get a bunch of – let's find some young, promising politicians. Let's say on the Democrat, we, we, we can get the Republicans, right? We can get the Republicans on this one. They've been trying to cut Social Security, and they didn't like it when it came along, and they've been trying to cut it every 20 years since then. So we got the Republicans on this one. Let's find some smart young Democrats who are on the, uh, you know, who are up and coming. There's this Clinton kid who just got elected in in, in Arkansas. Let's give him a push. You know, let's give a couple. And but believe me, Peterson and Clinton go back that far. Mm-hmm. You know, Bill Clinton, what was he thirty two when he was elected governor? Yeah, His connection very, very young. with Clinton. Yeah, his connection with 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 uh, with. Uh, Peterson goes back a long way. Let's find some promising young Democrats. Let's talk to them. Let's you know. Let's let's make them see things our way. Let's get a common understanding, and um, you know. And then a smart salesman like Peterson knows how to say, knows how to flatter, knows how to cajole, knows how to persuade, knows how to get people who think the way he do. He does. And um, you know they have powerful personalities. Fine. Then you start to build a network of these guys. Some of them rise very high. Some of them rise all the way to the top office, and create a cadre of people, you know, who who are remember.
0: and, And some of them are policy wonks who are widely respected and not well known publicly. Right. But when
1: it comes to when whenever you need to know. Something whenever the liberal news network wants to so-called, you know, wants to get an expert on uh, health, they get one of these guys or they get they get somebody like like our friend, you know, the blogger, Ezra Klein, who, you know, who was drafted into this circle of people who reflect certain things also. So, uh, you know, this is new people come and go in these circles, but the circles remain the same. And so you get now, Jimmy Carter was president for four years, Democrat, but never penetrated that circle. His people never penetrated that circle. He brought them in from Georgia. A lot, most of his top people, they were hated. A lot of those people expelled from that society while they were still in office. But Bill Clinton brought in a lot of people. He was charming. They were charming. They became, since, since Carter had been the only Democratic president since Johnson, they became the de facto Democratic Party elite and intelligentsia, and they had been permeated with this way of thinking about Wall Street, about Social Security, about
0: real the estate. Big government. The era of big government being over. Right. There's right, and private sector
1: can do it better, yeah, look at Rahm Emanuel, now that he's gone to uh, Chicago, you know, privatization. So, yes, this very, uh, you know, privatized, neoliberal kind of outlook, and when Obama came in, you know, had to fill a position, and they were the people he drew from, they were the people... that that defined that administration. And now we're looking at the possibility of eight more years of that one, four or eight more years of that one when Obama's done. So this is how policy elites get into power. And this is why Bill Clinton will share a stage with Paul Ryan, Representative Paul Ryan, and compliment him at a Peterson fiscal summit, and they'll laugh and joke, and they'll say Paul's a guy I can do business with, even though he's the most extreme major political figure, I think, in modern history, but uh, economically speaking. But, uh, you know, it's all we know each other. We know Paul. He's a good guy. He's, He's a charming guy. You know, Pete introduces Bill to Paul, and the rest, sadly, is history. I think there's a lot to that.
0: Now, Clinton himself is a connector type, though. I mean, oh, well, more, more you know, so than pretty much any president I can think of. You know, nothing. I mean, you think of Nixon, you think of Carter, you think of Johnson. Johnson was a different kind of power broker, but, but Clinton's the kind of guy who brings people together.
1: Well, I, I, I would say uh, maybe our typology definitions are a little different. I would characterize him <laughs> and not as a connector in the Milgram sense. I don't think he connects person A with person B. I think he connects everybody with him. I uh-huh. think he's a. He He's the greatest. I mean, he is the master salesman. I mean, and I've got to say, for all my anger even at, at Clinton over the way he tries to sell these Social Security cups, he is such a con artist. He is so slick, Willie. Really. He so deserves every epithet when it comes to the way he talks about the economy. And yet, when I saw him give that speech at the Democratic convention in 2012, it was such a. I'm so. Filled with joy to see a master, where <laughs> he is the best. He is just the best at giving his speech, at connecting. I've heard that on on uh, on uh, personal one on one introductions, he's just unbelievable. I mean, he's got an extraordinary, extraordinary gift in that regard for. Connect for making people feel that I'm told that, that I've never met him one on one, but I, I'm told that uh, he makes you feel like you're the only person on earth. You know right. when he's when he's looking at you, when he's talking to you, and he delivers it in a speech. Yeah,
0: so I've that's, seen, a, I've that's seen him in a small gift. audience at the Clinton Global Initiative summits, and he really is a powerful force on stage,
1: for sure. And um, oh. So, uh, so he's not the connector, he's a salesman.
0: Right. And he's someone who a fairly deep, deep conviction as well. I mean, he does believe this stuff.
1: Uh, no, I don't buy that.
0: You don't? Okay, go on. Please uh, tell me why. Now, I, I,
1: I you know, I don't know for sure, but I think that you know, there are guys you see them in business all the time who just love getting deals done uh-huh. and making the sale. I think he just loves making the sale. And um, I, you know, economically, is he is, you know, he knows his policy. He's amazing. I mean, he's just, I'm blown away by his grasp of the details of policy. But I'm not, unlike some of these other guys. I'm not sure. Maybe he believes it, but maybe he just likes closing the sale and making you believe it. Wow. That's That's interesting. That's the question (laughs) in my mind. (laughs) I don't know the answer, but that's the question.
0: Hello? Well, Ellsberg tells this story that the day that he received the clearances that would allow him to have access to information that not only he'd never seen before, but he didn't even know the existence of the clearances. And this conversation he had with Kissinger, in fact, and Kissinger said that three things were going to happen. The first thing that was going to happen is he was going to be astounded at all of the material he didn't know anything about. He was just going to be drinking this stuff up for a space of somewhere between 48 hours and a week. And then he's going to spend a period of time feeling like an idiot because everything he'd written, all the work he'd done, everything he'd done, understanding public pol- foreign policy and what was happening around the world was wrong because it didn't reflect all of this really secret information that he didn't have access to. And he was going to go through a period of, you know, realizing that all his life's work had been limited by his inability to find out what was really going on. And then Kissinger said what's going to happen is you're going to stop listening to people who don't have this level of access because they don't know really what's happening. And that they feel like they, and and it's very difficult to maintain connection with people who don't have access to information. You quickly stop listening to anybody who's not inside the circle. Have you heard that story?
1: Yes. I uh, heard, either heard it from him or you. I can't remember <laughs> which.
0: And and there, is there some of that? Is, do they feel like they have privileged positions of knowledge? I mean, you get that exp- impression from Greenspan, for instance, is that he thinks that he knows more than anybody else because he has access to information and other people don't have access to. And Greenspan was one of the people who, of course, insisted there was nothing to worry about with a housing bubble and was completely wrong. And was being told routinely by people who were uh, studying it just should you mention Schiller. Schiller was studying it as much as anybody could be studying it. And it came to different conclusions and, and Greenspan just dismissed it. Is that part of it? Do they think they have special knowledge, do you think?
1: Well, I think they do think that, and uh, and I think that they are, uh, to a large extent, wrong. You know, what I mean, I, I, I obviously, as as you pointed out, and Kissinger has certainly made many historical mistakes as well. But um, I think that w- what happens is everybody treats you like you're brilliant, and you get there as if your every utterance is brilliant, and you get there by. Um, having the confidence and the strength, the ego strength to disagree. I mean, think about it for a second. You have to have the ego strength to boldly make predictions and statements that are going to affect the lives of hundreds of millions or billions of people, let's say economically or militarily or in some other way. You have to have the confidence. Most people would say, I know I would say, gee, I think it's possible that it's this, but it's possible that it's that, and gee, that would be terrible. And so many people would be hurt. These guys would say, no, it's this. That's how they get to where they are, by by being decisive. And when they're wrong and hundreds of millions of people are hurt, by just moving on, not even giving it a second thought. That's the personality type we're talking about. Then you throw on top of that the access to confidential information and the fact that everybody treats their every utterance as brilliant. So that Alan Greenspan, you know, when Greenspan met Schiller, Schiller was the exception in his. Year. I mean, how often did you meet somebody who who disagreed strongly with him? As, like, you know, they were very accustomed to saying, "If you knew what I knew." You wouldn't think that way. Nice meeting you. Enjoy your professorship or whatever it is you do for a living. Uh, Schiller, of course, actually runs a very successful corporation as well. But I you know, never mind. Yeah, run your company, do whatever it is you do. I control the global economy. How about that? So I right. think I know what I'm doing here. And I, so, I, yeah. But also, you know, that story as you were telling it about Kissinger and Ellsberg, I also thought he was manipulating Ellsberg too. Um, these guys are great manipulators, and what he was really doing with Ellsberg, I think, was he was also saying, once you're going to be so transformed by what you find out that you're not going to want to listen to them anymore. The only guy worth listening to will be me.
0: <laughs> the person who understands this so well that he understands both sides of it. Yeah, that's interesting. Right. Uh, it didn't work out that way. But I didn't, no,
1: not in Ellsberg's case. God bless him. <laughs>
0: But see, this brings me back to Borovsky as well. So what you're actually saying is that somebody like Borovsky is simply not going to be able to there, – there's no place for um, a critic. There's no place for an honest voice. There's no place for the voice of reason in the current collection of advisors that reach the president. Now, has that always been true, do you think? Well,
1: yeah, I, No. First of all, no, I don't think it's true, and obviously I'm concerned about not putting it in such a black and white way. You know, you've got the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and those folks were pretty good folks, but by and large, I think it's true. But you know, I would say one great ex- historical exception to that would be the first, especially the first term of FDR, because FDR and you know Roosevelt knew coming in that he had a gigantic problem on his hands, and he knew he was smart enough to know. That the old solutions, the ones uh, proposed by Andrew Mellon, the Alconic Treasury Secretary Hoover, all the wise men, as it was one gender at that point, all the wise men of Washington, you know, they didn't. Argue, know let me what interrupt to for just
0: do. a second. Cause one thing it's important to note is that Hoover was actually a very innovative guy. He was considered to be an innovative guy. Now he's thought of as, you know, a moron. But in fact, he was someone who was. Um, an actual intellectual light at the time, and he was completely wrong. But NFTR knew that. But it's worth knowing. Oh yeah, no, I. It, it,
1: it's a parenthetical, but yeah, sure. I mean, uh, he was an engineer. He was a bright guy. In many ways, he was. If you look at Hoover's. Uh, a lot of even his economic pronouncements now, you'd find he would be considered a very liberal Democrat by today's standards. He was a progressive in certain ways, as there were progressives in the. Remember uh, Teddy Roosevelt, the great progressive, exactly. is, was a Republican originally. Hoover was a Republican, not not 20 years later. So there were progressive elements in Hoover's thought. There were imaginative elements. He was an engineer, a, a, a big but, believer
0: but in under- public infrastructure building, for instance, which is you know something that, that that FDR did carry on with.
1: A- absolutely. I was speaking strictly on economic terms, uh-huh. but that when when FDR came in and he knew he had this big financial crisis on his, I, I, Hoover had gone to the worst of the worst on the treasury side. And, and, um, and uh, a really brutal and sensitive guy, and uh, I, I'm talking about his Treasury Secretary. So FDR knew that the, the old Wall Street thinking wasn't going to work. He knew that Wall Street was riddled with corruption. He knew that uh, the, the, the so-called uh, you know Washington wise men of Washington didn't have a clue what to do and were part of the problem. So really his first term was there was a lot in a lot of areas, especially related to the economy, of just get me a bunch of bright people. Just get a bunch of bright people in here and try, try, try every idea. Try everything. And, yeah, and there's a WPA and 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 uh, you know all sorts of brilliant and the price ideas. Read- and the crazy
0: price registry, which wasn't a brilliant idea, the industrial management—I can't remember the name but the end—something was four. Car- it's a four-character acronym that didn't work. But he just said try everything and he said
1: try everything and he knew some things wouldn't work and that was that was a wide open time and that was a time when you know people were professors somewhere and then they got a call, you know, the president wants you to come to Washington and it might be for a meeting. It might be for a new job. It might be to fly to, you know, become the ambassador here or there. You know, FDR was so creative. that They created the F- the Securities and Exchange Commission and he put Joe Kennedy in charge of it. Joe Kennedy was one of the worst bandits on Wall Street. He was set a set of thieves to catch a thief. Yes. And, uh, And it worked great, and he said to Kennedy, you know what, I'm going to make you – we don't know the words, but in effect, he seems to have said, I'm going to make you respectable. You know, you do this, you can go to the court of St. James as my ambassador. You can be Mr. Respectable and not the the rum-running thief you are now, (laughs) And, and, and maybe your kid can be president someday. But first, I want you to go into that den of thieves down there on Wall Street you come from and clean it out for me. And by God, Joe Kennedy did. Now, that was a time of openness. That was a time of reaching beyond an insular group of advisors in order to do whatever needed to be done. That's the kind of thing we needed in 2009. And one of the things we, we, we,
0: we thought we were going to get, I mean, at least some, I certainly did. I thought we had a real opportunity here. We were in it. It was one of these crises or are breeding opportunities. We have a real chance to change things. And, uh, and we thought this president was going to do it. And it turned out, no, he was actually going to turn to the wizards of wall street. And that's been that, that zero eight to zero that, that first two year period is a really, uh, I think even deeper disappointment now, as we look back on it than it was then. And we were pretty upset then.
1: Yeah, I think it was, um, I I had the same hope and I, I think that it will be looked upon as a, a tragic lost opportunity, and um, one that you know there's no good outcome because the only way we'll have an opportunity like that again is if there's another catastrophe, uh, as far as I can tell. But uh, right. look, you know, you you. You you go to war with the historical reality you have, right. not the reality you wish to had, Right.
0: Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, the thing is, is that also that period of time is something that Joe Sudbay talked with Gaius Publius about on the show a little while ago, and it was again a question of insider versus outsider, outsider, because con- insider outsider conversation. But one of the things that they talked about a lot was how important access is. You know how. Our representatives, the people who represent the progressive movement um, professionally in Washington, um, have a conflict in that it's important to them to have senior officials at their events. And if they're going to have senior officials at their events, if they're going to be invited to meetings, if they're going to be able to participate in the appearance of having a policy influence, they have to go along to get along. Now, how pervasive do you think that is? I mean, Sudbay said that the reason that the LGBT movement was so successful in forcing Obama to live up to promises was that they'd suffered a huge Prop 8 loss and they just didn't have the – they just couldn't afford to – um, give up any rights, and they were uh, mobilized for that reason. But he also said that they are also willing to sacrifice their access in order to make a point. Do you think there's anything to that that problem of the uh, of access um, dominating the professional left's, for lack of a better term, operations?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think it's critical. I think that the minute you care about access, you basically neuter yourself because you're giving your power to the other party. It's the other party that grants or denies access. So you have no power. You, you, you've neutralized yourself in the relationship. When I say to you, Jay, what I really care about is access to you, and now I'm going to tell you what I want. You can say, well, I don't care what you want because whatever you want, I can you know, give it or not give it, and you still want access from me. So I think... I think it's critical for – I mean one of the things that made – see, everybody – a lot of people say on the left when you have this conversation, well, there, there can't be a progressive Tea Party. But the tea, here, here's why I think they're wrong. The Tea Party was very successful within the Republican power structure by saying, you know, we don't want it. Dance with John Boehner. We don't want to go to cocktail parties with John Boehner. We don't want John Boehner to speak at our conference. We want John Boehner to push for policy A, policy B, policy C. Now it just so happens that A, B, and C were insane. But but they basically said, and and if my guy in Congress is not pushing for A, B, and C, then I'll put in Michelle Bachman. I'll put in Sarah Palin, or I'll put in whoever I want to put in, and I don't care if that representative that I kick out is Eric Cantor. I don't care who it is. This I don't is care, if, I. Co- I don't
0: care a- if it costs the Republican Party the Senate, which it did.
1: I don't care if it costs the Republican Party to Senate. I don't care if I'm the most hated man in Washington when I come to town. That's not my agenda. Now people say, well, you can't really do that on the left because we don't have the money and, and and it's very relationships are very important. Well I think I, I think the the uh, the uh, gay marriage movement just proved that. I think it's and I think to a, a certain extent. The immigration debate has, has had some, some of those qualities as well, but there's been an element of, look, we've had enough, and we're going to do this without, with you or we're going to do this without you. And uh, you know, if you represent a significant enough voting bloc, I think that uh, you can have power. I think the bigger obstacle to the progressive version of a Tea Party is this cognitive lock. Of a, I think the bigger problem is that I've been in presentations in Washington where where you say, in effect, you know, somebody might say to you, well, it's irresponsible of you guys to threaten not to vote Democratic. I and mean, I would say... I'm not threatening. I'm showing you polling data that shows that the base is not going to show up in 2010. The base is not going to show up in 2014 unless you do A, B, and C. You know, push expand Social Security, whatever. It, it's, not, it's not even in this case us talking. It's just it's just voter
0: turnout. It's just. Uh, Objective common sense.
1: <laughs> but and common and common sense and polling data from right. right. in front You know. Uh, but the, you run into that cognitive dissonance, and then what Hold all the, seems to said, happen You said two different
0: things. You said cognitive lock and then cognitive dissonance. What did you mean by lock first?
1: By the cognitive lock, I mean it, it, something that just says I am locked into the idea that I, as a responsible Democrat, have to cut Social Security. And I have to encourage all others to do so. As an example, that's locked in. So you say to them, here's, here's, here's the uh, uh, actuarial data that shows it's not necessary, and you could do A, B, and C. Here's the polling data okay. that shows that it's politically suicidal. But you get that locked. No, I must do this.
0: I, I, and I, that, am, I and the other members of the bonder log all agree, and this must be true, even though there's evidence yeah. you're putting in front of them. That's, now, that's different from cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is him not listening to you tell him that he's wrong. Right.
1: Well, yes, which also occurs. So, yeah. um, so, so, the, the, you know, the, the cutoff, well, you know what, I don't want to hear this leftist, you know, whining, you know, exactly. but I'm not I'm showing you polling data on Tea Party members. I'm not showing you polling data on leftists. It doesn't matter. It's leftist whining. That's it. So um, you run into all that stuff. That's a much bigger threat. Uh, or a much bigger obstacle to a progressive Tea Party, I, you know, I, I guess because maybe it's just more of a game with the Republicans or something, but when the Republicans started losing elections on this stuff, they thought, oh my God, we better we better fall in line because we want to keep winning primaries. When the Democrats started getting primaried, their reaction, and this is interesting, their reaction was outrage. That at the very idea of primaries, that Joe Lieberman would be challenged in the primary, that Blanche Lincoln would be challenged in the primary. Who do these people think they are? It's fascinating, you know, and and this is from the White House. You know, this is as we know Joe, we know Blanche as opposed to the Republicans, which, you know, well, with Lindsey Graham's getting and I better make sure I keep my, uh, my Tea Party credentials in order. You know? It's fascinating to see the difference. Now, in is this that case, partly because Democratic- of, lower,
0: of, lower ter- of just fewer Republicans and therefore, you know, a the, the smaller number of people can be influential, or is it, I mean, why don't, why don't our primaries succeed?
1: Well, I think uh, to a certain extent, it's money. I think to a certain extent, it's messaging. And I think, again, it's the culture. And I think there's a very, very... I, you know, when we get into the culture of the Democratic Party, it, 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 there, there are so many angles to it. I mean, I think when, when we talk about the centrists, I think money rules and they're not going to be swayed. And I think the money and the cognition go hand in hand. But even, you know, it's really interesting. I had a lot of conversations with progressive members of Congress in 2010. And and there's one where I kept tape rolling on an interview, but I I promised not to release it. Where I was actually saying to a great member of Congress, great, they were all so angry at the idea that the Democratic base wasn't going to turn out. And my I was giving them the pitch, give them something to turn out for. Look at what the president's doing. Distinguish yourself from that. They're You know, people are discouraged. Older voters don't don't. Are turned off by the Social Security cutting, that talk. Younger voters are discouraged by a student. that give them something, fight for them. It, it, and, and they were all just kind of morally outraged. Uh, well, are they just quitters who are just going to get up and go home? And, I, and there's one of me with a member of Congress saying, I beg of you, please, as one human being to another, don't think that way. You know, think about how to inspire them. Think about how to lead them. But 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 something that I think happened, maybe as a result of the, the 2000 election, throughout the Democratic Party culture was it was no longer the responsibility of a politician to convince a voter to vote for them. It was the responsibility of the voter to vote for the politician. And if the politician didn't get the voter's vote, the voter had failed. <laughs> and, and I... And this is something that I think the Democratic Party needs to get over. So Nader voters, they are—they were demonized after 2000, and then, then that just became generalized. Voters who stayed home, they're demonized voters who, who don't canvass. They're demonized voters. You know, I think the we Democratic don't care about Party, voters
0: who don't support us?
1: <laughs> we don't care about voters who don't support us, and we down on voters who don't vote for us. We, don't, we look down on them. They're not doing their as citizens do. Oh, then they want Ted Cruz to be president. Well, how about instead of demonizing the people you're trying – you can't win somebody over when you approach them with an attitude of contempt. You know, how about saying, Where did I, how did I fail? How was youth turnout in 2010 lower than it was in 2006, much less 2008? Where do we go along with young voters, and how do we fix it as opposed to those irresponsible kids? serves them right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> I mean, exactly. you got to no, get funny. past that. I had a conversation today with uh, someone who's donated a fair amount of money to the party in various, various campaigns, and she was uh, approached by a fundraiser for Clinton. And uh, she <laughs> – and 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 my friend said, well, you know, I'm not really sure. I that the Clintons, somebody I want to support. I mean, I, I'm a supporter of progressives, and I'm, I don't think Clinton's there anymore. And uh, she said, well, you know, the, the the Clinton person said, well, you know, what would it take? I mean, you know, well, who'd you like to see for Veep? And she says, oh, I don't know. Says my friend, well, how about Harold Ford?
1: <laughs> oh my God! Wow! Talk about out of touch. Um,
0: and my the, friend was uh, ballistic in her accounting of the conversation. <laughs>
1: I I don't I I don't blame your friend I mean that's that that's astonishing. but that shows uh, uh, but but this get back to get back to the tea party thing you know I was at Netroots Nation and uh, uh the big progressive gathering uh, in in Detroit a couple weeks ago and when I wrote it up I said look you know the, and this is the difference between the Republicans and the Democrats if I were uh a Hillary Clinton operative and they were there and forced I would be coming back saying, tack as far right as you want. You've got the left in your pocket. Right. And that's because there's nobody. You know, I went there, and people, Hillary was Hillary's people were handing out you know mugs that said uh, Hillary Clinton, like thermos mugs, and then Warren for President. There were handouts, and people were thrilled. It was exciting and fun. And she spoke, Elizabeth Warren spoke, and then people took their Warren stickers and put it over Hillary's name on the thermos mugs, and president. you know they felt. very – and, but you know what? Every single one of them that I talk to, hey, I see you put the Warren sticker on the Hillary mug. Would you vote for Hillary, though, if she was a candidate? Yes. Every single one. Um, I, well, it's probably going to be Hillary, and we're going to turn out for her. You know, that's why progressives can't have nice things, because <laughs> they're, they're not willing to say, you know what, thus far and no further. You know, that I won't, unless Hillary comes out and, and, and expressly takes a strong progressive stance on this A, B, and C, you know, like the, like the Tea Party does, I, I'm not going to vote for her, much less canvas for and support for her, organize for her. But there, I think that is, to a certain extent, the professional left. I might get the job.
0: Exactly. And, and I the think that's that Sudbay talks about as he talks about Sudbay. Actually, Gaius makes his point more explicitly that if they won't work, they've got to support her.
1: I mean, there was one prominent economist who said to me, hey, you know, Richard, I called him up because I was needing funding for something I was doing This was years ago. So you know what? You picked a lonely road. (laughs) That was, you know, because you're not like, you know, playing on a team with a party and the president. You know, I I, I didn't have it short. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a conscious decision. But for the people who want to be, you know, careerist about it, or, and, and I get I had somebody say to me at Roots Nation, I said, I'm, I don't know if I'll vote. I, I, I'm not committed to voting for Hillary. Right now, I don't, I, I don't feel like it. And he said, don't you think that's irresponsible? Yeah. And I said, irresponsible? I'm giving you two years' notice. How much more responsible could I be if I'm that important? And, and, and otherwise, the calculation is I'm not that important. And if I'm not that important, then I'm not being irresponsible. So how about somebody figures out... What it would take to get my vote would be also what it would take to strengthen a Democratic majority in Congress. So why don't you think about that instead of calling me irresponsible?
0: Well, Harold Ford, here we come. Because <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> the same kind of thinking, isn't it? Right. Absolutely. How, can, how can the blacks not turn out if we have Harold Ford in the ticket?
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In any state that he chooses to run or as vice president, yeah. Um, oh, boy, that's depressing.
0: Yeah, it really is, but it's part and parcel of the same kind of attitude, I mean, and we, we, and it would be irresponsible not to vote for a Clinton-Ford ticket, wouldn't it?
1: I don't think it would be. No, I don't um, either. You know, but of course it depends on the state. I mean, if you're in a heavily blue state, I don't think it's – I think you're – you know, but see, here we go again. We're having that conversation. Already. Of conversation, you know. <laughs> I mean, I guess the answer is get a lot of progressives in Congress who are going to force, you know, the Clinton, Ford administration. I can't even say it. um, (laughs) To, to, I mean, you know, if you get a heavily progressive Congress and you get a mobilized progressive movement, those things may be more important than the presidency. And then you get a Clinton. Uh, President Clinton, in this case, President Hillary Clinton, who's got to do better things, you know. But, I mean, why are we deciding – why is everybody deciding on the left in 2014 that a nomination which is almost two years away has already been decided? I don't know. Uh, or I is two it years is. away. Why are people saying, no, it's over, it's decided two years from the fact? Is that really, you know – uh, and that goes for senate races and, and congressional races and everything else. I' had really reached the point where we're afraid to dream not only big dreams but the relatively little dream of getting a different set of nominees at a party ticket. No, that just can't be done. Is that who we are really?
0: We need somebody to get clean for gene i think uh i I'm like uh, we're, we're're an hour's up. it's always a fascinating time talking to you r j um the last thing hey, the last thing I would say. I lost what the last thing I was gonna say. Thanks so much for joining us. Folks, make sure you check out the Zero Hour. This is where Richard's gonna save the world because we're really in a lot of trouble, actually. I mean, we talk about these trivialities of elections and non-elections, but uh, there's a drought in California and that drought drought is one of the signs that we're at the Zero Hour and RJ explores that every week at We Act Radio. So do join up there. Thank you, Richard. (laughs)